Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinus. Makalua. The main team. Mega Bears fan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Skeleton Crew edition of Polycast. This is episode 328. 48. I'll get that number right eventually. I'm Canis Albinus, and I'm joined with the only other regular co-host here today, Mega Bears fan. Skeleton number one. And our backup, the Christy. The Irish skeleton. But yeah, Mackie's at a race, and um, me and team went to a family event, I believe. Fancy. Yeah, that's the thing when it's the U.S. Grand Prix weekend. in a while was that my yes okay sorry <laughs> it's been a while i'm sorry I'm it's sorry. new it's new you're this is the first time you've ever been on the show since we do it live with audio yeah, included so yeah. I, I never really paid attention to the cues even when that, when it was post-recorded so anyway we're going on about it the bbc has actually launched a series of programs on bbc radio 3 about games music and in the very first program well <laughs> they discuss they discuss the uh, music of uh, christopher tin which included Civ music. I wish Dis- I could listen to it myself. Unfortunately, BBC Sounds doesn't work here in Ireland. So D- Discuss is kind of a um, strong word. They played Signal de Valare, and then they said, what a beautiful piece of music. Now, let's introduce our next piece of music. Really? Yeah, so, I- yeah it, was, it was typical. Um, what, what, in America, we would call that PBS levels of in- 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 uh, audience engagement. Um, yeah, that's some comprehensive and exhaustive reporting there, BBC. Yeah. Well done. I mean, it would make sense considering BBC and PBS are both technically public broadcasters. So, yeah, but BBC at least is well funded, whereas PBS is almost entirely donation funded at this point, plus a small grant from the government. So, this is what we get for not contributing to their pledge drives. <laughs> Those things that get mocked on The Simpsons repeatedly. They are kind of a. I mean, they used to be fun to watch back in the days when people actually cared about public television of any kind. But nowadays, it's hard enough to get people to care about broadcast television. So public television is just kind of, if it doesn't have government funding, it just doesn't exist, really. Or it's on YouTube. That too, yeah. Generally, everything will end up finding is either on YouTube or streaming on one of the many various options of streaming television services that we won't name for fear of being biased. Well, we can be biased against Hulu because they don't exist in Canada. And I can be um, against the vast majority of them because they don't have a European version. Well, yeah, that too. Can we just get over this whole um, region locking thing? I hate it. I've hated it since the beginning. It's never been a good idea, and it never will be. It has annoyed me for the past while, especially when it's been you know coverage of various motorsports which have been locked to certain countries. Otherwise, your country you have to spend however much money for actual TV subscription, which you don't be buying for that one program anyway. I suppose yeah. people have the same thing with regards to Netflix and now Apple TV and all the other stuff where you're buying one subscription for like one series and that's it. One of these days we're going to end up with a system that works and it's going to be called Pirate by Pirate Base or something. 
and it's just going to be one one thing that goes for everything and everything else is just nonsense. We're going to end up with cable companies that are exactly the same as current cable companies with cable, except they're going to be streaming conglomerates and it's going to be awful and we're going to have to get them all with the same package deals we get now and oh no. All we need are an oasis of black flags or something like that. It's the same thing we have with the stupid gaming launchers. Why do every game company have to have their own freaking launcher? Because they all want the money sound effect here. Well, we don't talk about Chinese puppets. So. Even though there's more than one of them? There's one big one. And And then there's another one which is kind of a little bit in bed with them as well. But yeah. Some of which may be having a convention this weekend, which is being a bit. Yeah, I am going to ignore that. (laughs) I'm not going to look at anything until it's over because I want to be completely unaware of Chinese Chinese influence. But here we go. Well, speaking of pirates, kind of a little bit tangential, there is a poll on Civ Fanatics started by, I believe, Alexander's Hetoroi. Hetoroi? Uh-huh. Words are difficult to pronounce. I think it's uh, with, well. with a poll for what five never before seen civilizations from the Americas would you like to see in the future? And uh, this is a pretty big list there's probably like what like 20 or 30 of them on here i think there's the maximum number possible which is 30 yeah i I was a little bit disappointed that i did not see one of my top picks on here which would be the uh sioux or lakota unless they're just like using a different name for them that i'm not aware of because i know some have been in the civ in civ before oh were they they were in civ 2 oh okay well then i guess that would be why they're not showing up in this list yes uh so it looks like the um, top vote getters are at the time. Currently, this poll was posted on. Uh, geez, when was this? This is August twenty fourth. So it's been out for a cu- uh, couple months. Yep. Uh, top vote getters so far are looks like was this Argentina and Colombia? Or sorry, Colombia first, and then Argentina and Navajo. And uh, Mexico and Cherokee are up there pretty high, along with the Inuit. And one of the other vote getters, hence the uh, pirate segue, is the Pirate Republic of Nassau, which, um, you know, personally, I would say is actually one of the rare instances where you have a legitimate case for maybe that should just be, you know, barbarians because they're, you know, pirates. But eh, I could see it going either way. I when I was reading this thread, I kept thinking, you know, Nothing against people who live in Argentina and Colombia, but what have you done? I mean, Colombia has merit because they had an interesting leader. Argentina doesn't even have an interesting leader. They had a visa. Who? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, Mexico has a better shot, but they're already the Aztecs. So, I don't know. Um, When we say American civilization... We want to talk about actual civilizations because we were already saying that the American civilization was, quote unquote, like America, the United States, it was a questionable because it was already an offshoot of something that already existed that eventually became its own thing. And then Brazil is also the same way, but Argentina and Colombia are not particularly distinct from each other, let alone any of the other Spanish colonies. I mean, 
what have they done on a world stage other than, you know, Argentina had a brief naval race with um, Brazil for like 20 years before they ran out of money. And I assume they are talking about like the colonial countries, Argentina and Colombia, not like pre-colonial native uh, nations that existed. Pre-colonials would never use the word Argentina because Argentina is just Spanish for land of silver. Right. So, I mean, my preference would be for pre-Columbian, you know, civs wherever possible, uh, as long as, you know, there's enough information and history about them to actually, you know, build all the uniques and, you know, give them, you know, stuff that's uh, gameplay mechanics that are historically appropriate. I agree. I want to see Navajo because they were a major influence on the land they lived on and the people who lived near them all knew who they were and they were all uh, very respectful of them in terms of, yeah, we 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 respect these people because if we don't, they're going to come and, you know, take care of us. But Cherokee are also good. Choctaw Creek, Chickasaw, Seminole, Shawnee, Powhatan. Although Powhatan is mostly because of a single king who had a daughter who was famous. But yeah, and I, I remember for Civ V, uh, the developers had a pretty interesting idea for what to do with the Pueblo civilization. But then, as I've read on the Internet, they went to the Pueblo Nation and uh, asked for permission to use them in the game. And they said no. Uh, but the idea was to actually let the Pueblo build their cities on mountains. Yeah. Well, there was also the idea that they didn't ask for permission. They just asked if somebody wanted to do the translating. Like, they could get somebody from the the Pueblos who could speak their, their native language so they could give Pope some speech, and they said, we don't want him in your game. So Faraxis is like, okay, we'll pick somebody else. Which I think, oh, okay. was, I think it was much very nice of them to do that. You don't see a lot of companies that actually care enough about things like that to do the right thing. I suppose that's the thing to make is to make the save kind of almost like true to life. They kind of really do have to do a lot of research. And in some cases, the native or descendants of the natives are kind of your best bet for find, for getting like proper sources on that. And I suppose that's kind of the issue with, with a lot of these, well, potentially the issue with a lot of the, uh, I would say, old civilizations. I don't know if there were tribes or not, but in general, whether you have the history. Uh, the known history them, and some of them were tribes, or I think all of them were tribal, except the ones in the central and uh, Central America and the and the Andes. But in North America, they were mostly tribal, and their culture still does survive quite well because even though they were displaced, they weren't exterminated. So we have a lot of information about Cherokee culture. There are still a lot of them around. We still have a lot of information about Navajos and Apaches and Sioux and um, all kinds of smaller ones that aren't on this list. Like we know about the Miami, we know about the Iroquois, although they've already been in the game too. I guess that's the other thing. It's a case of picking and choosing which ones to go in because I mean, over the last few games we've had, I mean, after the generic Native American from Civ Four. We have we've had the Iroquois, we've had the Shoshone, now we have the Cree this year, we kinda or this game. Uh even the Mapuches down in uh, down southwest South America and all that. Yeah. I'd like to see Muisca because they were very unique for the land they were in. If you know anything about what the Muisca did, they were a confederacy that lived in the Andes and were sufficiently advanced to impress the Spanish with their culture. When they were before they were invaded, so and they did quite a bit of trading, and they were very wealthy for what they um, for their size and their strength. Others that are really good, I I want to see Cherokee, but not as much as I want to see something like Chickasaw, just because you know we don't hear a lot about them, and they're 
they deserve their time in the spotlight. I don't know much about the Seminole or the Shawnee other than that they're in the Southeast. It's also the other thing. It's a, it, it might also be a case of there may be too many in one area and they don't want to maybe focus all, you know, all of the Native American civs from one particular section of the continent, I suppose. Hence why we usually end up getting spread out like Iroquois, kind of Canada, Shoshone, sort of Northwest and now Cree. I think we're, I don't know where they would think we're kind of, are they the somewhere Cree in the Northwest in or the West? Canada. They were Canadian as well. I okay. believe they're in um, the area near Hudson's Bay, oh. maybe a little further west than that. I do not know exactly. But yeah, the Creek and the Chickasaw and the Shawnee and the Cherokee are all down in the Alabama, Georgia, South and North Amer- South and North Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky area. Yeah, and the Seminole are all in that. Central Florida-ish. Powhatan was right on the coast of Virginia. The Apaches were on the, the plains. I wouldn't mind seeing uh, some of these civs also be like genuinely nomadic in their game mechanics, like either not having cities or having some kind of, you know, movable city similar to what we saw in uh, the Rising Tide expansion for Beyond Earth. I've thought about some, something like that, but I just don't think it works. Like, because yeah. moving, moving cities in in uh, Beyond Earth was already kind of a gimmicky thing anyway that you didn't do very often. And Yeah, the the game mechanics would need to give you a very good reason yeah. or need to do it. And uh, yeah, the, the game as it's built now doesn't really support it. But I, I, I could see systems where maybe you actually have like, uh, and you know, both Beyond Earth and Civ 6 kind of went, started going in this direction. But uh, mechanics where maybe you have like a very dynamic map where, you know, the terrain and resources underneath actually change or get depleted. And then, you know, for traditional civs that would then pressure you to expand your territory but with a nomadic sieve instead of having to expand to new settlements you would just move your existing settlements so i could see something like that maybe working but it would be again a very different game probably not something that you'd be able to see in an expansion for civ 6 you know at best maybe like a civ 7 or civ 8 kind of idea you can do the main thing is to do a system like that you might have to like extend the game like as it currently is I know it's like 500 turns, but even the people who are playing quick and online speed, you only have like 250 at most. So like you wouldn't want to have to keep on, on, you know, bruising yourself every other turn, pretty much. On online yeah, speed, that's also a good consideration. Yeah, on online speed, the Deity AI reaches Modern Era by turn 110. So, An- Another way to incorporate the idea of like genuinely nomadic civs, I think, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, would be to just completely replace the idea of the concept of barbarians and basically transition the barbarians into being nomadic, like city-states, kind of, you know, nomadic tribes. And like, you actually have a certain degree of diplomacy that you can do with them where, you know, maybe you could be at war with them. Maybe they do invade and pillage your lands, or maybe you actually give them like permission to travel through your territory. And that actually gives you like benefits. Like they work the terrain for you and you, you get, you know, some of the resources or wealth or something. Uh, and then you could, you know, have a lot of these tribes and like things like the Pirate Republic and Nassau, you know, then make a little bit more sense because, you know, you'd have that as like a renaissance, you know, quote unquote barbarian group that, uh, you know, is actually a civilization that you conduct a minor civilization that you conduct diplomacy with. Sounds interesting. I don't know how that would work mechanically, but it would be it would be at least very um, different. It'd be interesting as a concept at least it should be doable if the game mechanics are changed so that, you know, a city-state can still exist without their city, or something like that. Then you just have, you know, their units just kind of spread around the map, and depending on how people interact with them, they may get more units or less, I don't know. 
Yeah, and again, it it's the sort of thing where, you know, just like the last idea might not be, you know, very doable or practical as an expansion idea for a Civ 6, but, you know, maybe an idea for Civ 7 when or if that happened. Other Civs on this list that we should mention, the Olmec, the Olmec. The problem with them is we almost, we know very little about their actual culture. We just know they built some heads. Were the, I, I'm trying to remember, were the Olmec the, the pre-Aztec they were in civilization group. They were in the Mayan era area, um, that part of Central America, and we know very little about their cities or anything about them. Uh, the only thing we have are those big stone heads and a little bit of right. stuff around those. Yeah, another civ that I'm not seeing on here, but then again, I also forget what their name was. But there was a, a pre-Aztec like civilization group that you know built like a grand alliance sort of thing and was the the precursor to the aztec empire and that could also be an idea mixed tech or, uh, maybe yeah or, or toltec or something like that i, I forget tech, toltec whatever. uh zapotec that one that the other tribes by, in that area that yeah was, one that was actually run by whatchamacallit your man what's his name monty <laughs> I thought that was the one that was run by Monty before the Aztec became a thing, because they were all just like a bunch of effectively city-states. But even in EU4, they're just called Aztecs, so I don't know what their actual name was. Yeah, it's hard to all say. All I know is they controlled Tenochtitlan, and from there, grew into the Empire. Unfortunately, I do not know where Shumash, Hopi, Aino, Guaro, Tupi, and Thinlit are. I don't know where they... Based. Some of them, I think, like Durrani and Tupi, are like n- the northern part of South America. I think somewhere oh, they're, right. they're, they're, because... they're like migratory tribes in South America. I believe. Okay. And Cuba, uh, why is this? Why are they on this list? They're only significant because the Soviet Union allied them. Other than that, mm-hmm. they have no relevance. Um, yeah, I really wish this list were like alphabetized or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time actually finding like. Like, oh, is this Civ on there? And then I have to look through the whole thing because it's not alphabetized. Maybe it's organized in some way, but I'm I not seeing think, that. I don't organ- think it would be because you have Navajo, which are kind of sent, you know, like, I think they're Arizona. And then you start having South American, like, actual countries. And then you go straight to Haida, which is, like, Pacific Northwest. So Navajo was basically Arizona, New Mexico, and parts of northern Mexico. Yeah, so it was a my- pretty large area. My suggestion for for people making these uh these forum topics is is please organize your your poll suggest or your poll list some Alph- somehow like either alphabetize it or alphabetically, yeah that would be best yeah alphabetically would be best because if it's not or regional you are showing bias well you could do regional like go from like north to south or like east to west or something like that or continent to continent but yeah then like you said you have to pick which is your uh you know, where you start and where you end. I mean, is it any surprise that the ones that are the most popular are all right at the top, except for a couple? And they're also relatively recent for the most part, or there's a lot of known history. Yeah. Oh, well, we can stop critiquing this guy's poll-making ability, because he's just trying to start a conversation, whether or not... No, it's a, it's a good poll, and uh, there's uh, a lot of good, uh, good ideas in there. Okay. Next topic is similar, although... Probably more controversial. This is a a poll in which you choose seven alternative leaders you'd like to see most in Civ Six, and um, there's some names on here that are a little bit uh, strange. Shall we say Alfred the Great for England? Really? I would like to see King Richard the Lionheart for England, but that would be interesting. Problem is that time period is already filled up by Eleanor. 
Yes, that that's correct. So that would be uh, kind of redundant at this point. Uh, I'd almost wonder if they'd even for England, Henry VIII, and then have his unique ability to do something with regards to religion in the middle of the game. That would be pretty cool. Or the ability to found another religion even after all the others are done, just that um, on your whim almost. There was or you some... can just keep generating great profits and then use them to change your religion. Yeah. yeah. There was talk of including Scipio Africanus as a Roman Republican as opposed to a Roman Emperor, which would be interesting. I'd like to see something like that. And, uh, oh yeah, the idea of adding the Roman Republic would be interesting. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I am also in support of the idea of actually having a Babylon, or uh, not Babylon, uh, by his, uh, Byzantine leader being an alternate for Rome, especially if that actually opens the door for another sieve that we haven't seen before to be added as a full civilization instead of having to see a Byzantium sieve again. So the that problem, is something I would be open to, and the there's been a lot is, of controversy. The problem is that Byzantium and Western Rome are so different that it would be like if um, Germany and France were called the word lumped under the same civilization because Charlemagne ruled them both at one point. It, it's they are that different in terms of culture because in the in the Eastern Roman Empire, which was Byzantium, they didn't speak Greek and they or they didn't speak Latin and they rarely used it. They almost exclusively used Greek and. Compared to Western Rome, which was Latin and also had a lot of other things going on that the East didn't have, they are so different from each other that it doesn't make sense for them to be the same thing. Right, which is why I you know, did qualify that by saying that you know, if it comes down to we can include Byzantium or we can add this other sieve that we've never had in the game before, uh, in that case, I would rather see them go with the new sieve that we haven't seen before and relegate Byzantium to being an alternate leader for Rome. I want to avoid saying that it's like having Jefferson Davis as a American leader. That would not be popular at all. But, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of talk about American leaders as to who would and would not be appropriate. We did get to page four before we called Jefferson a slave owner, which is always good on an online forum that we can get that far without having to bring that up. Um, what else was going on in here? There was a lot of talk about Charlemagne being the dual leader between France and Germany. I'd rather see that than, uh, actually see a Holy Roman Empire civilization. Oh, yeah. Well, see, here's the thing, I was, but that's the thing I was thinking, because I, I don't know if, I don't know if the current state of at least of the French and German civs and civ six, I think they're more based upon, you know, uh, later centuries, whereas Charlemagne obviously ruled in the 8th century. So HRE would be probably a bit more based around how Basically, almost how Europe was in the 8th and 9th century, as opposed to the split civs, which are based more around, I don't know, 15th and 16th century. And I wouldn't actually mind seeing a German leader in the game who, you know, actually is a leader of the nation state of Germany, because uh, I think, uh, what is it, Frederick in Civ Six was, you know, a Holy Roman Emperor and uh, what, Emperor or, or King of, what was it, Prussia or something like Frederick that? Frederick Barbarossa, wasn't he? Yeah. Is it Frederick? Yeah. I thought it was uh, Otto. No, it is, it is Frederick. Frederick yeah. Barbarossa is the first, is the the king of the of what the when you talk about German history and they talk about the first, second, and the third Reich. Otto was the one who they called the first Reich because he was very strongly in charge of almost all of the German speaking peoples as a Holy Roman Emperor. So he is a good choice for a German leader, even though it wasn't a unified political state. It was a unified imperial collective. Frederick the first was eleven twenty two to eleven ninety, so twelfth century. So he's already kind of 
old in that sense. Well, I say old, but it might actually be too close to Charlemagne in terms of history as to whether they could both be in the same game. And I think. Well, I I I wonder about the 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 shoot the reasoning behind eliminating people because they're close to history because if you want to go by that logic we had like in civ 4 colonization we had thomas jefferson and john adams as the british colonies not thomas jefferson george washington and john adams they were the first and second american presidents they were separated by exactly no time so, well, to be fair, though, the colonization game, you know, took place over a much narrower period of history. So, yes, you know, but like, OK, let's take it to Civ four. We got Lincoln and Washington. There's not even a hundred years difference between those two. And yet they they presided over extremely different times and and problems. And I and would Civ say War also had FDR. Yes, but which is also less than a hundred years away from Lincoln. I suppose comparatively, though, when you think about the the i would say time span history of the american civ it would be you know that's only what three four hundred years america as a country has existed for about 240 years yeah and when you factor in the previous kind of colonization sort of section as well you might get to about 300 350 or something at most yeah something like that comparing to but but i will say that the the state of germany when charlemagne ruled is extremely different even than the state of germany when um when frederick ruled because it was it, it, it in those 300 years a lot happened that was the high middle ages and a lot of things changed so even though we think of history as moving slower they didn't necessarily move slower they just moved in a different direction than we're used to thinking they didn't progress straight they progressed laterally sort of like I- how how there was a lot of land in germany that that charlemagne ruled that was very um, undeveloped in terms of like cities and and farming, whereas all that stuff was fairly well settled by the time Bismarck came around. So the the dynamics of internal politics were different. One of my uh, one of my big personal criteria for for judging alternate leaders is uh, uh, I usually like to see alternate leaders for the civilizations who are either on the extreme end of being peacemongers or the extreme end of being warmongers. Uh, and I like to see an alternate that is usually on the opposite end of that spectrum, which is why, you know, I've, in the past, I've always advocated for having like an alternate leader for India, uh, you know, because you usually have Gandhi, who's like the super peacemonger in the Civ games. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm glad that they did that in Civ 6. Same with like uh, the Aztec, you know, Montezuma is always like a huge warmonger. So I would not mind seeing an alternate Aztec leader who's, you know, more peaceful and builds alliances and stuff like that. Because it's, it's nice to have that variety. I, I kind of don't like in the game where you see a civilization like India or Aztec, and they almost always behave the same. Whereas the civilizations that have leaders that are more like middle-of-the-road personalities can oftentimes kind of go in either direction. But when you got the leaders who are on the ex- one extreme end or the other, a lot of times they play similarly, and it would be nice to have the alternate leader on the opposite end of the spectrum just to kind of balance that sieve out a little bit more. That almost makes you wonder whether... There could be, for instance, another German leader who is focused more on the economic side and the economic period of Germany. I mean, you know, the Hansa, the Hansa is already there. And they probably just need something that works more, that focuses more on economy rather than that city-state takeover bonus. Who would we pick, though? See, that's the thing. I'm not entirely too like, sure. Most of the most of the German leaders are very recent, and are that you would think either Frederick or or um, 
somebody from the 20th century after Hitler would only would be the only ones you could think of that were economically based because before that to real life (laughs) like any of the weimar republic leaders nobody's ever heard of and they weren't particularly successful at being economic leaders before that you had willem ii he was a warmonger otto was a warmonger i don't think there was anybody between those two and if you want to go and before that germany was ruled by the prussians and the austrians and split Mm -hmm. between the two and that's how it had been since the 1500s so for Germany, you don't really have a lot of choice after the after the the medieval era ends and before the industrial era begins because they're all there is no real German state at that time. It's split between the Austrians and the Prussians. If I recall correctly, uh, Bismarck was you know known for being a, a diplomat and statesman, so you could maybe make a case for you know him having like a peaceful alliance building or you know mediation ability and just you know kind of going full on on that aspect of his character but then you would be ignoring the imperialist elements well i wonder as another alternative option i know it probably sounds crazy but what about if instead of using like a german leader they instead took a leader of for instance like the hanseatic league and used them instead that would be interesting um like somebody like a leader from hamburg or something yeah and use them as the german leader and have that focused on the economic that would be really good because the Hanseatic League was very German, and it was very powerful economically. So I could see that working. Uh, Ramses the Second of Egypt. Um, we've already seen him. What would he be? How would he be different than Cleopatra? I'm not sure. Cleo is very focused on alliances, but I think her coding also makes her a bit of a backstabby. So I would want to see sure. for Egypt somebody from like. There's obviously that one oddball pharaoh who was not part of the regular dynasty system what's his name a10 or something that would be an interesting leader because he was so different than the regular early middle and late kingdoms but uh other than that just maybe some early pharaoh that that really set up the egyptian system rather than just another like we don't really want to have another octavian type thing and we don't want to have another what was the guy's name ptolemy those Ptolemy- the Ptolemaic dynasty, somebody from the Hellenistic period, we don't really care about that. Because we we've already got Cleo, so... It also makes you wonder about you know, potential other alternative options, like, is there a Spanish leader who wasn't focused on colonization sort of thing? Uh, there like, have I mean, been several. We like, I don't have know a... much off my heart, but we're just kind of, th- just kind of thinking about like, how, how the civilization's been represented, at least over like this game and the previous game, in regards to their abilities, and is there a leader of the country slash empire that was very different or didn't care about those and that way the their civ ability and civ six could be changed so that the civ plays completely differently again using india as the example gandhi the peace on the you know peacemaker versus chandra just going in expanding everywhere with elephants i forgot to mention what the actual results of the poll were um napoleon was first bismarck was second and uh it looks like Catherine of Russia tied Bismarck pretty close. And then after that, you have Willem of Orange, Kublai Khan, Louis XIV, Ramses of Egypt. Wu Zixian's up there. Wu Zaitan, yeah. Augustus Charlemagne. Caesar. Augustus, Augustus Caesar. Akbar the Great of India. We don't need another Indian leader, thank you. We've already got two. And George Washington and Elizabeth I. And who tops There's a lot of options in this poll, including one of the some of the 
crazier suggestions, such as Kublai Khan being a, a dual leader for China and Mongolia, as well as William of Orange as a triple leader of choice of either England, the Netherlands, or Scotland. Well, why would he be of Scotland? Because he was... Well, it, William of Orange is the one... What, uh, I don't know. I guess that makes sense because England and Scotland weren't unioned yet at that point, but... They were, while the crowns were being united, it wasn't Great Britain at that point in time. The Act of Union was in, what, 1707 or something? 1702, 1703? Around that time. All I know is it's around that time period. Yeah, that's when Willem of Orange was around. Willem and Anne were the king and queen of England after 1690, so it was that time period. So I can understand that. Kublai Khan would be interesting, especially if you can get him, especially if he was leading China. I suppose that's the thing, you'd have to design a leader very in a specific way in order to interact with the existing stuff civ yeah. style and civ abilities of two different civs kind of like how they had to do it with eleanor there was some discussion about john adams versus um some other american leaders and i'm just kind of thinking john adams is the only president who actively passed a law that said if you disagree with the government you are breaking the law so that kind of you know I don't agree with him. The Alien and Sedition Acts were kind of a big debacle. Um, other American leaders, Jackson, no way. Well, but then again, you know, you, the Alien and Sedition Acts does give you something that you could base a gameplay mechanic on, you know, so maybe you give that leader some anti-espionage, you know, power, but you know, some uh, something that counters spies, maybe. That like, that's a big thing, too, is, is making sure that you've got a good idea for, like, what this leader actually does in terms of gameplay mechanics. So if you've got an idea for a cool mechanic, then yeah, sure, put the leader in there. But if you can't figure out a mechanic for it, then, like, don't even bother. You could have, like, I can see something like that for somebody like Jefferson, just have him be able to purchase cities from the AI. Because, or land, yeah. Well, yeah, that's basically the biggest thing he did during his presidency was that he bought louisiana and everything connected to it um but there are a lot of people who don't like jefferson because he had a kid with his slave and we put modern stuff onto that like it has the same meaning as it did then and it doesn't but i think i think it might have been a little more than one kid but yeah <laughs> well yeah but I, I just have to remind people we do not need to judge people 300 years ago by the statements that we make today because it just doesn't work because if you judge people that way, even 50 years ago, things look start looking really bad for people that we should not be saying are bad people. Because, you know, Jefferson is responsible for the Declaration of Independence, and he wrote a lot of our original stuff. And he is a very, a very powerful American thinker. And even though he did own slaves, he hated it for every second he did. And he wanted to let them free, but he couldn't because he was in debt. So... Like, there there are realities behind the things that we think of as bad, but we can't we can't judge them the way we judge people today because they don't the culture is different. Reality is very rarely black and white. It's almost always shades of gray. Yeah. There's always nuance and, you know, complexity to, you know, these sorts of situations. And we see that in a lot of politics now where everyone tries to treat things like it's you know, black and white, there's a right and wrong answer. And in reality, most of the time, it's just like there's a whole bunch of wrong answers and you just kind of have to figure out which one is the least wrong. You have to, yeah, you have to navigate the bad answers to get to the one that's the least bad. And very often in situations like like early or antebellum America, um, post-revolution America, there were a lot of things that people had to do to survive that we would never think of doing today just because 
it just wouldn't, you just wouldn't think that way. I don't know. Other leaders, so we don't turn this into American history podcast. Elizabeth I, I'd like to see um, Elizabeth I as an, as an elderly lady rather than as a young lady. So we have kind of a counterbalance to Victoria, although we already have Eleanor and Victoria. So I doubt we'd see a third English leader. Maybe a Sassanid Persian, like Shapar II? I could also see a case for maybe seeing a uh, joint Spanish-Brazilian leader. You mean Portuguese-Brazilian? Oh yeah, Portuguese. Yeah, sorry. Like maybe... Portuguese. Well, yeah, Port- Portugal's not in the game, though, so yeah. I guess that's uh, kind of a starter. Like uh, unless Maria they, from they got Civ Five would be a good choice, because she did rule Portuguese government in exile from Brazil. So Correct. That, that's exactly what I was thinking of and then i i forgot that it was portugal and not spain and that Sp- portugal was in civ 5 not civ 6 so it's okay everybody makes that uh, distinction or that still mistake could be added as the brazilian as a brazilian alternate leader to focus on that time period rather than pedro's rule because pedro focuses on great people whereas maria could have her focus elsewhere i suppose who would we want to see for german or for um japan because sure, the there's a lot of people there we could pick I, I would kind of want to aim kind of yeah, I would kind of want to aim towards maybe uh, an industrial Japan, like, just to separate it from the the you know shogunate era. But uh, then you're you know getting into World War II Imperial Japan, and uh, I don't know if that's going to be PC. Well, you can do a Meiji Japanese leader during the Meiji Restoration, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like one of the one of the leaders who is in charge during the I you know I don't know enough about Japanese history to know who that would be, but one of the leaders who was in charge during the time period when the you know European powers were coming to Japan and like teaching them how to build railroads and telegraphs and all that stuff, and they were starting the process of uh, industrialization, but before they actually got to the you know pre World War II imperialist mode, that would be the Meiji era because um, Western ports for Japan or the Jap- Japanese ports were opened by. The Americans, when they sailed four ships into the harbor and basically said, open your ports or we're going to blow you up. Um, after that was like within 20 years, the shogunate was overthrown and the Meiji Empire, we call it an empire because they were the imperialists, took over and started the modernization process that didn't really become like super awful until after World War One when they started oppressing people harshly, but... You know, before that, they were just Japanese and trying to get caught up with the rest of the world. So I could see somebody from that era. Yeah, I could see a power based off of maybe something along the lines of, uh, like, uh, for lack of a better term, leeching extra science off of civilizations that you have, like, trade routes or diplomatic agreements with. To that you know, work. So if you're falling behind, you it speeds you up through the tech tree as, like, a catch-up mechanic. Isn't that uh, but then you... Yeah, but then you'd probably also need something that, you know, gives them an advantage when you're, you know, ahead in technology, so... It's true, Japan does technically have, like, some pretty good tech these days, so you can kind of replicate the starting behind, then you kind of leech some science and culture off of the other saves, and then suddenly you're springboarding ahead, and you get to make use of that, and you have this other powerful ability. But yeah, I feel that may step on Peter's current ability. Yeah. Who do we get as a second Russian, then? Because I don't think we uh, want Catherine the Great, because two Catherines in one game would be a little bit. Even the terrible is in the uh, is in the poll, and I wonder if someone like him or someone who ruled in kind of 15th, 16th century that didn't focus purely on the Siberian expansion, but focused more on the conquering of like the the Tatars and that sort of and kind of what is now kind of 
or what was kind of the southern part of the Soviet Union, so all the like Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, all that sort of area. The area near Crimea and to its west, to its east. Yes, but not Crimea itself. Yeah, well, yeah, where the right Golden now. Horde used to be, and yeah, all those sort of areas. So a leader that kind of would that maybe was around that time period and has more kind of and has more kind of combat oriented focus rather than Peter the Great, but is uh, focus more on getting science and culture and all that from everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, I think we can safely rule out any Soviet leaders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Soviet e- even, Union. you know, beyond Stalin, but... I mean, the Soviet Union was a trash fire, so I don't know. Is that controversial yet? I know people are starting to like the Soviet Union now for some unknown reason, but it was really bad for everybody involved. I haven't a clue. Too far east for, <laughs> for me to have cared about. It's probably people being nostalgic for the, you know, time around the fall of the Soviet Union when, you know, they were actually starting to engage with the West and being peaceful. And now we've got Putin and it's like, oh, I long for the good old days when, you know, they were only a little bad instead of completely evil. It's mostly that the, the I know that the that nobody outside Russia longs for the Soviet days. But I also know that the Russians are live in such a corrupt society now that at least under the Soviets, they didn't have to worry about that as much. So I can kind of understand where they're coming from, but anybody outside the Soviet Union who thinks it was a good thing that it existed, I just want to ask them about certain things that we know they did and just see how they think about that. So it should not be a secret, but the Soviet Union, I believe, is probably the worst nation that ever existed. Worse than Nazi Germany, but that's just me. Inatom of Sumer. Does anybody know anything about ancient Sumer? Not really, unfortunately. I know very little about it. The only bit I do know is what Siv has taught me. Yeah, pretty much everything I know about uh, Sumer was taught to me by Captain Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation. Ah. That's also the same thing. It'll probably be applied for stuff such as like Babylonians and all that sort of thing. My knowledge of Sumer comes entirely from the Epic of Gilgamesh which is not exactly a historical source. So true. But there is a uh, increasing, I think uh, evidence and consensus consensus that uh, Gilgamesh was in fact an actual uh, King of Uruk. So actual historical figure. Whereas I think if you go back like 20 years ago, there was considerable debate on whether that was even true. And I think the general consensus was that he was a completely mythological figure. I don't know. I, uh, I wasn't in that particular study field 20 years ago. I was in, I'm not going to say where I was. Um, so, good list. Lots of good discussion happened here. Should we move on to the next uh, thing that we should talk about? Probably, yeah. All right, then, everybody. Hold on to your hats. I can spell it right. Then last week, it was a thread posted by Lilianser in the Civ6 forum on Symphonics, where the age-old topic of tall versus wide has been brought up yet again. And just questioning, should Civ6 inherit the uh, the penalty to science and culture for a number of cities that was in Civ5 that a lot of people hated and was what made Tradition 4 cities the go-to thing in Civ5? By My answer... No, oh, go ahead. Well, just saying, obviously, for those who aren't aware, it's that in Civ 5 and Beyond Earth, you got 5% extra cost on text and civics for every city you had over the starting one. And it, it wasn't just 5%, because it did scale. It did scale. It did, it basically, every time it was 100, it basically, it became 105%, then it was 105 times 105, so it just kind of... Yeah. 
And just to be clear, forward. this topic is not suggesting that we inherit the, you know, global happiness and the uh, other mechanics from Civ Five that limited the size of your empire to four or five cities. They're just talking about the science and culture penalties, right? Yes. Yeah. That is a very, very important distinction because those happiness costs were very punishing sometimes. Yeah, correct. Especially uh, once if, you had a, if you were in a competing ideology. Yeah, if if you're talking about carrying over the global happiness, then my response is a super emphatic no. Uh, but that. if you're talking about uh, uh, you know, introducing you know penalties for going too wide, uh, then I think you've actually got a discussion. Personally, I I think I would rather see like maybe benefits for having tall cities as opposed to penalties for going wide but you know that's a you know maybe a different topic i mean one of the main thing is that obviously i suppose the question is because now in civ 6 with everything there's like very few percentage uh, bonuses or percentage yields that are added everything is a flat yield so in theory going wide is only good because you're getting more flat yield now obviously it, they're meant to the uh the counter to that is supposedly that obviously the settlers and the district cost school, so it takes longer to get the to get everything set up. But once you do get them there, you know you're getting a flat bonus straight away. Um, like I suppose maybe a little bit of increase in the cost of get of your uh, tax and civics maybe makes a little bit of sense. Like on top of the the already existing penalty for trying to research ahead of time, but I mean the ahead of time penalty isn't all that much. It's only what twenty percent, I think, per era. So it's not all that high. Whereas I think you know, if, if if you manage to expand out into like twenty cities, I mean, yes, you should have a little extra tech cost because it's it might represent you know trying to coordinate the efforts being done by your by your researchers and your culturalists or whatever. <laughs> but you know, just to yeah to simulate the effort of trying to get them to all working together onto one common goal. But I mean. Maybe not to the extent of Civ Five, where it got to the point where you'd settle a city and you'd actually lose science progress because you did your cost just went up so much more than you can get from this new city. So we already have a wideness deterrent, and it's called loyalty pressure. Well, it's not only yeah. that, but it's also the um, the builder mechanic uh, because unlike previous civs, where you could just build a but a but a load of workers early in the game and then just have them work all of your newly founded cities as you uh, call or as you settle them, in Civ Six, you actually do have to continually reinvest production into building those builders. So every time you found a new city and you want to get uh, you know, a road to it and improve the terrain, you have to spend some production probably from a different city that's, you know, more productive. So you're not spending 30 turns waiting for a builder to pop. So, you know, there, there is stuff like that as well that does kind of put a check on how fast you can expand and still be like productive. I suppose that depends though, because if you have a large empire behind you, a new city, you could probably still easily afford the builder buyout costs. Like even if it starts getting up into the 2000 gold sort of time frame you might still you'll be earning like 400 gold per turn at that point so it's still only like five turns for a new builder if all else fails yes and that is true not to mention the policy cards get better over time so at that point your builders are coming out with at least five charges i've always been of the opinion that civ 5's city penalty was more of a more a function of necessity to keep the game from crashing than it was about limiting or was about um the design of the game itself because i when i was talking to the people who made civ 5 
they said that one of the things they had problems with was if the map was too big, they would just the game would just not run. And it was surprisingly small, the number of tiles that were required to crash the game. So we have this other issue where we think there should be more tiles on the maps. Pretty sure they want more tiles on the maps, but they can't put them there because if they did, the game would crash a lot. And Civ Six has better infrastructure, which means that it can handle more, but at the same time, it still... It does. It still would explain a lot about the Civ Five design. I think, though, that um, as they release the expansions and stuff like that, they've optimized some of that uh, code under the hood. So I, I think that became less of a necessity as Civ Five evolved. But they, you know, they never did change that mechanic. So it wasn't about um, like coding proficiency. It was about pure memory because Civ Five was a 32-bit application, which meant that it had a very limited amount of memory it could use. And when you reach the end of that memory, you either start threshing the hard drive or you crash. And usually if you thresh the hard drive, you crash anyway. So you can only go so big before you run into the problem of, we are out of memory, we cannot go any further. And a 32-bit application can only use about 3.1 gigs of RAM total, despite how much there may be on a 64-bit machine. So Civ 6 is 64-bit. It doesn't have that limitation. That helps a lot. I had forgotten that Civ 5 was locked to 32-bit. Yeah, we yeah, forget maybe. We forget that 32-bit is not as, as far in the past as it seems like it is. It's only like about four or five years at most, I think. Uh, pretty much like in 2016, 2017 is when pretty much everything had to swap over to 64-bit. Yeah, um, 32-bit was still widely supported until about that time. I've had a 64-bit machine since 2007, and very, very nice compared to the old machines. I like being able to open a file that, you know, has more than 500,000 words in it if I need to. In the thread, there's a few um, few suggestions of other alternative options for making, uh, for kind of limiting the, the, for example, the insistence that a safe can make like 10 cities and just put a canvas in every one. Um, Some are suggesting... You know, rather than the current mechanic where uh, districts you have less of than the average, we get cheaper. Maybe a mechanic where you can only be, where you have to build districts relatively evenly. Uh, I'd say most districts relatively evenly. You're still going to want to like, I'd say stuff like harbors would probably still to be relatively specialized, or you'd still be able to put one in every coastal city. But I mean, you know, you'd have to build a certain amount of holy sites, maybe build a certain amount of campuses before you can build more or something. Although perhaps that may be, that perhaps they might, that may not work because you may not want to actually focus on religion at all. So there is that too. Yeah, I definitely don't like that rule being enforced on uh, holy sites because you know so many civilizations just have no religious benefits at all, and on the higher difficulty levels, you're not going to found a religion anyway. So it's just a waste of a district. Mm. Yeah, like maybe it's, maybe it's also a case of that. Um, Maybe it's just a case that the uh, campuses and theater squares need a nerf or something. Maybe they, maybe they have too readily available adjacencies compared to some of the other districts. I mean, we all know how much mountains are lauded because it's like, yay, free science. But like, what if it was? What if a campus was only plus one adjacency for every two mountains as opposed to one? Like, would that be enough to make campuses like used very differently? Especially now with the with the very recent change that they get a major bonus from reefs. That actually does bring up a question uh, from me, which is, uh, is the adjacency bonus like cumulative for all the the uh, terrain features or is it like for each one? So if, if 
if the campus were one science for every two mountains and you were adjacent to one mountain and one rainforest, would you get zero science or would you get one science? You'd get zero. Yeah, you need two of the, if if it's something that is a minor bonus, you specifically need two of that thing to get one point. They okay. don't they don't count with each other. So it's not just half a science, and they don't. Yeah, it's not just know, a half, add all a, of them together, and then. Yeah, I, I know we kind of call us. It's a gain a half science, but no, it, it is a case of you need two of this to gain one. It's like when they changed the industrial zones very recently, and now it's a case of you need two mines to get one point. Well, it's a case of you're next to one mine and one lumber mill, and you get nothing. You need two mines for a point or two lumber mills for a point. That seems silly, but I understand why it exists. It is a bit silly, especially because I I think based on based on a few of the mods that I've been playing with, uh, things like you know technically things like a grassland mountain is different to a desert mountain, and if you had something that was like gain one adjacency for every two adjacent mountains it doesn't work if you have if you're adjacent to two separate mountain types you have to Ouch. be adjacent to two grassland mountains or two desert mountains to get an adjacency as opposed to just mountains in general so it's a bit of weirdness with the coding there's yeah, it's probably just comparing the terrain type yeah no, but te- technically it's because it, I think in the coding a grassland mountain is a different thing to a desert mountain but it, it's also you need to it's a desert mountain is what makes the graphics look slightly different slightly more like the Grand Mesa sort of thing but there are some other suggestions in here that there's also suggesting changing like the level uh, tier 2 and tier 3 buildings to be more or to be less flat and more percentage based but I, I don't know if that's going to change the, the early game issue where you want where the adjacency gives you pretty much everything. No, but it does encourage building taller cities. Mm. There's also another another odd suggestion, which maybe is somewhat unrelated to the campuses, but by post by wife and parade suggesting that maybe your empire should have loyalty penalties scaling for every city you settle. So as you settle more cities, your cities are slightly less effective at loyalty pressure. Especially as they get further away from the capital. That too, yeah. I'd like to I, veto such a suggestion with prejudice. I do not like that idea. Perhaps. I no, I'm mean, not sure I like it either. I don't. I have a problem with already the games having these huge areas where there's nothing settled. We do not want to have this thing because the AI would settle lots of cities and then they would all flip to us and then we would win because we can handle loyalty better than they can. Something that I've been seeing in several of the recent games that I've been playing is cities just completely. Uh, repeatedly flipping like back and forth between uh, being free cities and being uh, belonging to you know another civilization because they have like just enough loyalty pressure to to flip it but like not enough to hold it so it'd be like oh this city has become a free city and then oh this city has joined so and so empire and then like you know five turns later this that same city is a free city again definitely seen that a couple of times where it's been almost like it's almost like two civs in the dark ages kind of fighting over this one city in the middle well like the city the city itself can't decide where it wants to be yeah yeah it's almost like it's one of those uh things from like the middle ages where it's like uh, i don't know which you know who do we want to be with or you know who do we swear loyalty to like i could maybe see making loyalty pressure uh harder or scale down like working if you the you know player or the civilization had more things that you could do to increase loyalty pressure you know from your city or or better secure its loyalty like if there were uh uh like if the bread and circuses thing was like 
available regardless of whether you had a, a entertainment complex there so that you could at least like run a city project to try to buff the loyalty a little bit to you know wait for you to uh you know maybe to fill in some of the loyalty behind it because yeah otherwise like conquest would just be i think far too difficult because you'd conquer a city and then three turns later it would it would just flip and there'd be pretty much nothing you could do about it there's another suggestion out there in the thread and it's another crazy one but what if with the current system whereas you basically you get the adjacency bonus as a flat bonus once it's built that's it you always have that for eternity as long as it's not pillaged but what if you had to work the district in order to get the adjacency i would like that as a mechanic and i would also like for like specialists to be better because then you would also have another incentive to build taller uh empires if, if if the specialists gave you great people points like they used to do or if their yield scaled up with you know technology or with the development of the district or, or something like that then you know you would want more population in the cities because you need to work the tiles to get the food and the production but then you're also like well i really want to work some of these you know specialist slots so yeah i'm gonna pump up the population because hmm. it makes me think of like um like in c5 when you had settled near well assuming you were able to work Krakatoa if you settled nearest, but you have to choose between working it to gain all the science or actually growing your city, especially in the especially if it was like very recently founded. But yeah, it would make sense here in the case of like because at this point you could pretty much put a campus down when your city is like population one essentially, and by the time it's built, you know maybe population two, and then it's like oh you can start working this plus six campus, but then you know you're barely getting any food to grow the city. So while that may be good, you know, that city's just going to sit there and not really going to be able to do much for the entire game. Now, some people might say, Asher, that's grand. That's all I want. No matter whether we'd have to look into, maybe it's also a case of maybe adjacency bonuses have to scale based on population on the city. So you only get the full adjacency if it's like, say, pop five or pop six or something. No, I think, um, I think it would, you're on to something there. I think just having, like a base yield bonus from the district that you get for plopping it uh, would be good. And then all the adjacency bonuses, you would have to actually work the district in order to get that. So you could also have situations where you have not a very good uh, district, you know, like you plop down a a campus and it's only got like a a plus one. And then, you know, maybe you don't really want to actually work it because it's not worth working, but you should still get something from it because you did invest in it. Yeah. Like quite possibly, like yeah, it quite possibly even like maybe transfer some of the adjacency bonus into the base district itself. Possibly, I don't know. Like make a campus worth basically make every district worth at least one of its base uh, of its base yield just for existing. Obviously, two for the commercial hub because gold isn't worth as much. And then you have to work it to gain, for instance, you've got to work your holy site to gain your forest bonus. You got to work a campus to gain the mountain bonus, that sort of thing. Or possibly even you know for every for every distinct different adjacency bonus it has you have to work it with more people another option could maybe be that uh all of so you look at the um encampments right and the encampments have the barracks and the stable which are like mutually exclusive buildings maybe you could have a system where all of the districts have buildings like that at each tier so say for instance you have your campus and then you build either an observatory in the campus, which gives you the adjacency for mountains, or you build like, I don't know, an apothecary in the campus, which gives you the adjacency bonus for the rainforests. And then each of those buildings then has to be worked in order to give you the full adjacency bonus. Hmm. 
I think at that point you might be getting into it might be a case, more a case of you're having to sacrifice production and population to work those. I don't know. It, it might be it could be an option, but it definitely hearing that you know definitely that suggestion of maybe the adjacency bonuses aren't given to you straight up, but they're only given to you on your tier one building. Maybe makes might be something. Yeah, and then you have options for even further specializing the districts. You know, in, instead of just specializing the city. Yeah, like I'd love to see, for instance, like in the um, in a commercial hub, I'd like to see you know the you can either have a Marcus, you know, a standard Marcus for getting your river adjacency, or you can have more of like a something that's near enough, like a customs house, so you can have your uh, so you can have a harbor adjacency, for instance. So we option, yeah, yeah options to further specialize the districts, but by removing the base kind of. Just by, but also reducing the potency, just general adjacencies. It might help with the the runaway aspect, and therefore the tall versus wide might become less of a of an issue because you know you're not settling a city and instantly getting ten science within ten turns. Right, and then so you know the the two benefits of that sort of idea is one, you have to invest further into the district before you get you know the full bonuses from it, and also uh, two, you have that opportunity to specialize that district. The question, though, is how good would the AI be at that? Because that's a lot of thinking ahead, and that's one of the things that the AI has traditionally been not very good at. Not particularly great at, no. Its district placement is still very random and almost kind of haphazard as it is, I think. Yeah, the the yield bonuses are free, and the AI still can't figure out where the heck to put their dang districts. Like, oh my gosh, you could have gotten a plus four by putting it next to those mountains, but instead you put it adjacent to the city, instead of waiting for your city to grow one more tile and plopping it. Oh my goodness, what's wrong with you? Yeah, so I think I think all these all these thoughts and suggestions on how to nerf are probably more a case of how to nerf players versus DA versus <laughs> some coding, I suppose, is the question. Yeah, but then you... In terms of AI intelligence, it gets better, but it's not great. I mean, the problem that the AI has is that it is making all these strategic plans, but I think this the root of this is back when they talked about making it so that the AI would change its plans more readily back in Civ 5 days, and I think that really screwed them over somehow, because if they make a plan they can make good plans if you look at their plans they're not bad the problem is they'll get one step into producing into activating that plan and their plan will change and it will be very different than the original plan which means that the thing that it originally planned no longer fits into place so you do that six turns in a row and suddenly you've got a hodgepodge of stuff all from different plans that don't really interact well together yeah, they really need to try to finish executing a given plan before moving on to a different one, unless there really is some super extenuating circumstance, like a surprise war is declared on them, and now it's like, all right, well, forget about building campuses anywhere, we need to build units. I think it would be easier to just say, okay, this is the set of core things that Civ should be doing, no matter what its strategy is, and you do all of these, but you kind of do them at what you would call like a... a I want to say middle middle burner speed, where it's not critical for immediate survival, but it is critical for long-term survival, so that it puts these things at a lower priority than things like build a unit so you don't get killed by the player. And then at the same time, make it so that that inner strategy doesn't shift much unless there's a real big reason that it needs to. And by real big reason, I mean you have one city left and you have an army on your border, at which point it's probably too late anyway, but 
you shouldn't be sending out settlers at that point, which the AI still does. Yeah, and there is a... I was going to say, I thought there was something in the code where it's like the code or like the AI for deciding when to build a settler and the AI for settling the settler. It's like different, I thought. Yes. When yeah, you talk that's about, a problem too. When you talk about a Civ AI, what you're actually talking about is a collection of scripts that perform certain tasks in under the control of a management script that tries to emulate what a regular player would be doing when playing the game. So when you talk about AIs, if you look into the code, there's actually somewhere like 30 or 40 different AIs running at any different time, any given time on a civilization. Because you have the tactical, you have the strategical, you have the settling, and all the individual units have their own AIs. And it's not... It's hard to make an AI for a game like Civ because Civ is a very complicated game with a lot of options. And the fact that we have an AI that can even remotely play the game is incredible in my opinion and that it keeps yeah, getting bit. it's it's not a tech, it's not easy and it's not something that should be you know the ai isn't great when the game first comes out that's understandable because the game is still in flux how do you teach an ai to play a game that is not set in stone you just can't do it so yeah uh i, I also kind of wonder do the ais actually use the build cues in the city because i could see that as maybe being something that they could do to possibly improve the uh, ai's planning and performance we have a system where if something is uh, uh low priority you put it at the back of the queue and if something is high priority you put it behind the first item in the queue and if something is like emergency you know super high priority you put it at the front of the queue and then if there's no like changes in those circumstances, then you just let the queue play out until it's completed. And then you pick something new to work on. And that m- might, I could maybe see that helping the, um, the AIs with their, uh, you know, with figuring out how to do the, the short, medium and long-term planning. Maybe. We don't have access to the Civ 6 AI code yet, because that's usually in the DLL. But I highly doubt that they use the queue that way because when the game was released there was no queue which means that the ai had to have some data structure somewhere within it to to hold all that information about what it wanted to do next which means they probably didn't change that to use the in-game system when they added it later right i and i agree that's probably the the way it works but i'm I'm not sure Uh, and i am wondering if using the queue would actually improve the uh, AI's performance because I mean, it might not like it might just turn into a whole nother you know trash can fire of bad AI where they're just constantly moving things around in the queue and nothing ever gets done. Well, that is definitely a thing that AIs like to do. They will very often get confused and not to do. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about situations like in Civ Four where you could fork the AI by putting two cities in immediate danger because in that situation the human doesn't know what to do, so the AI is obviously going to get screwed up. But, you know, when when there is a very clear, this is what you should do to not immediately die, the AI should be able to handle it, but it doesn't seem like it's quite there yet. Getting better, though. I don't hear any more neighing. Is the horse dead? No, uh, well, possibly. <laughs> I think we've, we may have gone on a tangent, but that always happens here. Well, yeah, what, what was the topic again? The topic was... Tall versus wide. Tall versus wide penalties. Penalty. Yeah. Here we are talking about the AI and the build queue. How the heck did that happen? Well, I have some insight into how AIs work, and somebody asked a question, basically. 
Sounds like it. <laughs> oh, well, we'll move on to the next. This is the part where we remember that I already introduced the show, but I'm gonna I'm gonna end it as well because we originally had another topic, but it's too late to do it. So this has been the Skeleton Crew edition of Polycast, episode 348. Is that correct? Yep. That's what yes. my notes say, so it's correct. I am Canis Albinus, and we are joined with our our co-hosts today. We've got Mega Bears fan. I do, in fact, use the build cube. And the Christy. I'll play us off by taking some bones out of my arms and playing my ribcage. Well, that is interesting, and I did not actually schedule this well because two days ago was Halloween, and uh, that was completely by accident that I used the term skeleton crew. So happens that the that it's kind of convenient that it was near Halloween when this had to happen, and it's the, it's the best reference that exists. Yep. Oops, that's not the right one. Civilization Sound Clips Copyright Take-Two Interactive Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net